0: I invite you to open your Bible this evening to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 has the title, A of David miktam of david we are not sure what that means it it might just be a writing of david it might be a a specific type of 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 poem Uh, but we're just going to focus on what he actually wrote and find that this is just a tremendous psalm of, um, of praise as david lives out and applies his faith in god let's give our attention to psalm 16 psalm of david Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the rain today, and we ask, Lord, for your showers of blessing tonight, too, as the rain falls to the earth and does not return, except having accomplished the task for which it was sent. Lord, we thank you that your word, as it falls, uh, does not return to you void, but that you have a purpose tonight to lead us and guide us in truth, to show us who you are. And what living by faith looks like. And so, oh God, give us then ears to hear from you, our Lord and Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message tonight is The Happy Christian or The Joyful Christian. Uh, This is a testimony of someone who is enjoying his faith, enjoying his profession, enjoying his Christian life. This psalm is full of expressions of delight, uh, contentedness, security, peace. If you notice, as uh, just to remind you, verse 3, uh, the saints, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 9, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. There's a lot of happy language, a lot of exuberance in Psalm 16. And the remarkable thing about that is that David is writing this psalm in a time of difficulty. That's the genius of Psalm 16. He's not writing from a place of contentedness in the sense of all his circumstances being as they, uh, he would like them to be. Remember, the psalm begins with a petition, Preserve me, O God. There is danger of some sort that he's facing, some difficulty uh, that he has to experience, a hard circumstance that is beyond his ability to come to control, and so it is. It is from that difficult place that David writes Psalm 16. As I said, that's the beauty of this psalm, and it's the beauty of the Christian life. It is, in a sense, the mystery, the genius of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is able to be in difficult places, in trying circumstances. And yet, speak like this, experience delight and joy and peace and confidence. There's a path laid down in God's Word that Christians, God's children, may freely walk on our journey through this world. It is a path of peace, a path of of confidence, security in God, a a path of joy. Deep soul satisfaction, even in the midst of hard circumstances. And David, in Psalm 16, is walking it. So it's a, it's a psalm that is so rich. Uh, it's such a wonderful place for us to learn. What does David see? What is, how does he walk this path of joy in the midst of a trying circumstance? And so the Holy Spirit tonight invites you, wherever you might be tonight, to follow David. As he walks this path, some of you are undoubtedly in uh, a difficult trying circumstance uh, tonight. Some of you feel like your whole life is a difficult trying circumstance. Life can feel that way. Maybe your heart is weighed down with the burden of a particular relationship. Or with the disappointment of a frustrated dream. Maybe you're here tonight with a heaviness of grief. It's just, it's hard. It's trying. Maybe some of you experience just... It's sort of an ongoing, the oppression of certain fears, things that you are afraid of losing, things that you are afraid of experiencing. You can't really maybe even bear to, to listen to the news anymore because it, it seems like the world is sort of crumbling down around you, and you're afraid. Well, whatever your burden or concern tonight, Psalm 16 is written from uh, a position just like that, and it's... And, God has given us this wonderful psalm so that we can learn how to, how to apply our faith in trying circumstances so that we can experience the things that David is experiencing. Uh, I've just broken the psalm into two basic parts. The first is um, the activity of faith, the first six verses, the activity of faith, and then the second part of the psalm, the benefits of active faith. So those will be the two broad headings. But we're going to basically just be following the psalm uh, verse by verse, following David as he walks this path from petition to profession to praise. That's what's taking place in the psalm. It begins as a cry for help, a petition. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is, is in, in a trying circumstance. We don't know what it is, but if you just remember the story of his life, he's often under oppression. He's, he's often, particularly in the early days, fearing for his life. Preservation is not just a vague idea for David. It's a concrete experience, a, a, a need that he knows all too well. Preserve me, oh God. Rescue me. There's some threatening danger at hand. And the word that David uses here as it begins this psalm is the word Elv, the name of God, that signifies a God who is mighty, God who is powerful, the God who is able to save. It's very appropriate when you experience a sense of danger. You need to be preserved to speak to God as God. Be still, write Psalm 46, and know that I am God, able to save. We've said before that one of the most God-honoring prayers is help. Help. It's a great prayer. It honors God as the one who's able to help and willing to help. It acknowledges the truth about ourselves that we cannot save ourselves. We can't rescue ourselves. It's a wonderful prayer, and David prays it. Psalm 50, we read, God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you. Well, David's in a day of trouble, and David's calling. David needs help. But I want you to see that his petition is embedded in a profession. Help me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Notice, and this is so critical to this whole psalm and to David's entire experience, He is not simply asking God for help, he's running to God as his help. He's taking refuge in God, convinced that this is so often where we fail. God's children often experience a lack of peace, a lack of comfort, a lack of joy and security in times of trial, even though they're asking God for help. But the help doesn't seem to come. The circumstances don't seem to change. And so the believer is discouraged. The believer feels maybe abandoned by God, maybe left alone, and we're searching. Why wouldn't God answer the prayer? Why wouldn't He grant the petition? We're asking for help. Well, the key principle that we need to see is that peace and joy and comfort and security are not found by asking God for help. But in taking God as our help. That's what David does. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. You see, it's, this psalm is an example of faith at work, faith in action. David, as he moves through this psalm, is gathering to himself the truths about God. He is storing up in his mind and and in his heart all the things that he knows about God, all that God is for him, all that God is to him, all that God promises And those truths, you see, the the things that he's convinced of, the things that he believes about God, he takes those things and he lays them down as the roadbed for his path to peace and joy. They are the foundation for his experience. You see, friends, the only faith that is effective to the end of comfort and peace and joy and security, the only faith that is effective is applied faith. It's active faith. It's faith that lays hold of and grasps the things that God has declared to be true. Faith has to be experiential in that sense, activated in order to be effective. Psalm 34 verse 8, great, great text. Taste and see that the Lord is good. When you taste something, you're, you're pretty much committed to it. And it is an, an, it is an active engagement. I remember as a little guy, there were a, a whole host of foods I was convinced I did not like. And no matter how much my mother would try to persuade me, just taste it, just taste it, just taste it. I wasn't going there. I was convinced I would not like it. Many Christians, we say that, there are, that we believe things about God. We could, we could maybe give you answers to specific questions about God. But we haven't tasted it. We haven't actually set it in the, the, the mouth of our faith so that we know its flavors and we, we, we sense its texture. And we've, we've rested in it. We've, we've leaned up against it. We've taken it to ourselves. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Not the man who professes simply that God is a refuge the man who takes refuge, the man who runs to God. Because you see, as soon as David takes refuge, as soon as he takes refuge in God, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the fear begins to dissipate and the joy begins to flow. Not because circumstances have changed. There's nothing in the psalm that would suggest that anything has changed circumstantially between verse 1 and verse 11. So what's happened? Well, as David takes refuge in God, as he feeds on the truths of God, as he takes the reality of God into the reality of his circumstances, he finds that God is sufficient, that God is enough, and that God is, in fact, more than enough, an abounding fountain of joy and a source of treasure and pleasure, a a reason to be confident. And so David applies his faith. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. It's covenant language. He takes the Lord, the only Lord, and he says, you are my Lord. It's like a, a husband taking a, a woman to be his wife, and, and, and a wife vice versa for her husband. I take you to be my lawfully wedded wife. I take you, just you, to be my lawfully wedded husband. The word that David uses for God here is Yahweh, the holy name of God, is sovereign, Lord, King, ruler. He says to God, I take you, the Lord. As my Lord, in all your sovereign goodness and might, in all your dominion and authority, you are my Lord. You're the one whom I serve. You're the one who rules over my life. You're the one who ordains all my days. You're the giver of all good gifts. You're the one who sustains me in trial. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. That is a fantastic statement. Think of all the good things in life. There are so many good things. Relationships, meaningful work, times of rest, good literature. Right? Isn't it just a joy to read a good book, good music? So many good things, and yet David says, I have no good apart from you. That God, the Lord, is my supreme good. And all the other good things of life are good only as they come from God and redound to God. You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Did you see already here in verse 2 how David's mind, the horizon of his mind, is filling up with the reality of God. David is, as he's thinking about God and feeding on the truth of God, his his petition is immediately shifting to a profession, laying hold of God in faith. Now, if he has no good apart from the Lord, well, what what about God's people? Is he one of these guys who are in this mystical lofty tower of spiritual experience so that he really has no relationships that are meaningful? Well, that's not at all the case. The evidence of his delight in God is found in his delight in God's people. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. You see, if Those who love the Lord and take the Lord as their Lord in a covenantal way find that they can't help but love his people. The two realities are inseparably intertwined. As as God becomes more precious to you, as his saving purposes, what God is doing in the world... We read about what ISIS is doing in the world. We read about what Planned Parenthood is doing in the world. We read about what this political party or that political party is doing or what that nation is doing, what that that potentate, what that ruler is doing. What is God doing? Do you delight delight in what God is doing as as God gathers his people and builds his church? You see, the, the purposes of God and the people of God will become more and more a delight to you. This is, this is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. Do you delight in the people of God? Well, if you, uh, the more you love the Lord, the more you will. His children will be your delight. A good question to ask yourself, just honestly, is who do I like to hang out with? Who do I prefer What crowd do I identify most naturally and enjoyably with? Is it the business crowd? you you like that the best the most? you like getting together with with people and talking about the business world? Maybe it's the party crowd. Maybe that's the crowd you enjoy. Or the music and arts crowd. That has a nice sophisticated feel. Or the political crowd. You can feel smart and self-righteous. Maybe the sports crowd is your crowd. You like being able to snap off the stats and to name the names. What fellowship do you delight in? What, what conversations do you most enjoy? What social gatherings do you most prefer? It's become fashionable the last few years for Christians to openly profess that they, they love Jesus, but they're, they're not crazy about the church. They believe in Jesus, but they're really just sour on organized religion, what they call it. They prefer to spend their time with with unbelievers. They endure the church, but they enjoy the world. Friends, you can take it from Psalm 16, that that if someone's profession, it's a false profession. Or better, you could say it's an accurate profession of a false faith. David would know nothing about someone who says, I love God, but I'm not really crazy about his people. I love Jesus, I just don't like his wife. I love to spend time with the Lord, but uh, it, just gathering with his, with, his, with his people leaves me cold. No, I, he delights in God's people. Can't help it as he loves his Lord. And his, you see, his love for the Lord and his love for the, for the people of God and the purposes of God at work. I, I mean, do you realize we get front row seats to see what God is doing in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters when we gather together and talk together and pray together and engage in God's uh, kingdom tasks together, we get front row seats to see the miracles that God is working in our lives. And because, you see, David loves the Lord, he loves God's people, he has no taste whatsoever for the idolatries of this world. The sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Their drink offerings I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. Just, I'm not going there. I'm not going to participate in this world's pursuit of all of its false gods and we have just as many today and they're just as gross and they're just as fruitless they all lead to the same thing multiplied sorrows. And David says I'm not going to, I'm not going to get involved in that. The Lord's my Lord his people are my people. And God is my chosen portion and my cup. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. If you notice in your English Bible, Psalm 16 is made up of seven paragraphs, seven strophes, And this is the middle one. It, it contains the core kernel in a sense. The, the, the core activity of faith to choose the Lord as your portion and your cup. Faith isn't just believing in Jesus, believing in God. The devil believes in Jesus. The devil believes in God. Faith is choosing the Lord as your portion, your cup. What does that mean? Well, when when Israel entered the land of Canaan if you remember they they received the land as their inheritance what God had promised to Abraham is now given to Abraham's children and when they went into the land the Lord explained how they were to divide the land up every tribe and every family received their portion and boundary lines were drawn all through the land. So everyone had this, this portion of the inheritance. This is where they would live and make a living. They would dwell here. This would be just become part of their, uh, their identity as a people. Well, the Levites, if you remember, didn't get a portion. All the other tribes got a portion of the inheritance, the Levites didn't get a portion. Why not? Was God punishing them? No. They were called specifically to serve as ministers in the house of the Lord. Maybe either the tabernacle or later the temple. They were the servants of God. And so they were given certain cities and towns that they would dwell in. But the Lord was their portion. They had the privilege of, of coming near to God in his worship and leading the Israelites in, in worship. God was their inheritance. God was their portion. And David says, even though he's, he's not a Levite, he's a Levite at heart. You say he's a worshiper. He's a priest. He, the Lord is my chosen portion. You could lay out before David all the choicest properties of Israel. You could lay before David all the treasures of this world. And, and David had tasted the treasures of this world. He knew what it was like. He was king. You can lay it all out there. And David says, I, I choose the Lord as my portion this is where I will live. This is where I will dwell. This will become my identity. This is my treasure. This is my inheritance. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. It's the same word, the pleasant places, it, 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 it's the same word later transferred, uh, translated as pleasures. The lines have fallen to me in pleasures, in good, pleasant, pleasurable places because God is my portion. God is my portion. Do you know what that means? Have you ever, have you ever s- sensed that in your heart, that really that's, when, it, when it all boils down, that's it's all that matters? Because we're chasing after our portion here and our portion there. And this morning we read Martha, we, we talked about Martha and Mary and how she's anxious and troubled by many things. And yet there's one thing essential, one thing that's necessary. David says, I choose God as my portion. This is where I'm going to live. This is my inheritance. And and he's beautiful. I have a beautiful inheritance, a a delightful inheritance, a precious inheritance that nothing in this world can can match. You see, friends, that's the secret to happiness, in hardships that that's the secret to soul satisfaction when you're in sore circumstances to choose the lord as your life your portion your cup god will be your provision god is your inheritance and he's beautiful he's beautiful plummer says in his commentary in many things the righteous are wise They put truth before error, eternity before time, saints before sinners, the spirit before the flesh. But the height of their wisdom is in preferring God. God's will to their own, God's favor above that of all creatures, and God himself to all the universe beside. That's faith in action. In the middle of a difficult circumstance, to say, Lord, you are my Lord. You are my sovereign ruler. You ordain all my affairs, and you are my portion. You're my treasure. You're my inheritance. You hold my lot. What are the benefits of such an act of faith? Well, we find that in the following verses. One of the benefits is that you have the Lord as your counselor. Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. you think it's it's wonderfully kind for God to instruct his people. What if he didn't instruct you? What if he just left you to your ways, left you to your supposed wisdom? But God doesn't leave us. He speaks. He reveals himself. He teaches us. He, he trains us in the way to go. And God has done this for David. He's revealed spiritual truth and spiritual wisdom to David, so he can see the value of the Lord above everything else, and he can believe that the Lord is sufficient and the Lord is his his cup, his portion. He believes it. Why? Because God has told him these things. How? Through His Word. Psalm one, nineteen, twenty-four. Your testimonies are my delight; they are my counselors. Do you have a counselors? Do you have a counselor? Is the word your counsel, your guide? Even at night, David says, my heart instructs me. Isn't that a wonderful experience when you can't sleep because of some difficulty, some trial, some grief, some burden? But you can lay in your bed at night and you can reflect upon the truth of God's word. The Holy Spirit can bring verses to mind, truths to mind, promises to mind. You can you can. You can just talk to God laying in your bed and receive his counsel. You can reflect on things that that you know to be true from the word. You can rehearse God's character, what he's like. You can refresh your soul with his promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Call upon me in the day of trouble. All the the things that God has said you can take to yourself as you're laying there in your bed. I, I hope you know that experience. I love how the, uh, in the Psalter hymnal, Psalm 16, when in the night I meditate on mercies multiplied, my thankful heart inspires my tongue to bless the Lord my God. I hope you know what it's like to, to lay in your bed in the midst of a difficult circumstance and bless the Lord your God who talks to you by his Holy Spirit, through his word, as you lay in your bed. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful gifts that God gives to us in our life. I've set, verse 8, the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. His his cry for help has been turned to praise, hasn't it? His fear has been replaced with confidence. Not because the circumstances have changed, but he's, he's, he's fixed his eyes on the Lord. I've set the Lord always before me. Rather than fretting about the circumstances, trying to figure out how to make this thing work, how to make the problem go away, he, he sets his mind and heart on, on his Lord, the God who, who ordains everything. If God is for me, who can be against me? He is at my right hand. He is my strength. He is my shield. And because he is ready and willing to help, because he is my refuge, I will not be shaken. Psalm 27 is a wonderful um, just laying out of that. What can man do to me? If an army breaks out against me, even then I will, I'm going to be confident. I can't be shaken. The God of Jacob is our refuge. It's our fortress. I will not be lost. I will be secure. Do, do, do you sense what a rock that is in the midst of a difficult life or a trying circumstance? What a rock it is to know that nothing can touch you apart from God, and the only thing that touches you in in Him is for your good and His glory. But you're secure. You're not going to be lost. You're going to be okay. You can have that confidence. He said that confidence produces joy even in trial. Therefore, he says, verse 9, because he has this conviction, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my, my flesh also dwells secure. One of the things that you see, or just seems to me to, to, to be so evident to me, as, as I look at what's happening in our, in our culture and in the world, things are shaking. Stock market was down, what, 530 points, maybe, I thought I might have read, this week. You don't think that there's people tonight fearing tomorrow? Wondering what's going to happen with their wealth. Nations are rising. Things are being shaken. But the Christian, you see, the Christian can say, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be shaken. You can take every dime I have invested in the stock market. I'm, I'm not shaken. Whatever the prognosticators say, if that comes true, that, that, that'll be hard but I'm not going to be shaken. It doesn't change anything about my relationship with the Lord, and, and, and I belong to the one who ordains and rules this entire world. The Lord is my Lord. And it's incredible the confidence that we can have. I, I remember just talking to someone uh, this past summer about the, the uh, this was right when the decision was made regarding homosexual marriage, and and, um, and it just seemed like there was going to be a, a, a real push towards uh, persecuting the church maybe softly at first but increasingly and and um one of the pastors i was at general assembly and one of the pastors just said with a with this genuine smile oh yes it's going to get interesting (laughs) wow that's not how i would have said it but the, the confidence just flowed from him god is god we're his My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. Why, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It seems as if the thing that was weighing upon David, the thing that he sensed he needed to be preserved from, was death. What do you do with death? Death is scary. We weren't made to die. Death feels like losing, losing everything. It feels like ultimate loss, ultimate condemnation. I don't know if there's a single person in this room tonight that would, could honestly say, I have never experienced a fear of dying. It's possible. I hope that'd be nice. But it's highly unlikely. We fear dying. And it's appointed unto every man once to die. And then to face the judgment. How do you rejoice in the face of death? But by grasping the magnificent truth that God has conquered death for those who take refuge in him, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. David not only is not afraid of death, he has absolute confidence that he is going to live. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And David is saying, I expect to be there. I expect to taste that, to see that, to enjoy that. Death is no obstacle. Has it settled into your heart and mind that if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you are a child of God, there is an ocean of joy waiting you, an ocean of pleasures forevermore? It's just astonishing what God has done for us. It's absolutely astonishing. we deserve, we just we deserve hell. That's that's all we deserve. And yet God, for some reason, friends, has has chosen to, to manifest and magnify the, the just the magnificence of his mercy. How how magnanimous his grace is and, and how abounding his love is. He's chosen to do that by giving you life forever. And, and not just life in the sense that you exist, he's chosen to give you. Fullness of joy. An ocean of joy. Not just peace and contentment. It's, it's not just being able to sit on the couch forever, right? In that sense that, that this is nice. It's ecstasy. It is, it is, it is joy overflowing. Joy that, that feels too much to handle. Forever. Forever. That's what he promised. Fullness of joy. Our God doesn't just take little gifts and give them to you. He takes the most magnificent gifts and lavishes it upon you, pours it out on you. Fullness of joy in the presence of God forever. That is your inheritance It is is yours in a way, Peter says, it cannot be taken away from you. It's being kept in heaven for you. And you are being guarded by the power of God through your faith for the inheritance. You are so ridiculously blessed, so unbelievably wealthy in Jesus. Words truly, absolutely fail to describe it. You see, and the the wonder of it all, the wonder of it all is that God has accomplished this gift for you at the price of his son. It's through Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the dearly beloved son of God. I know you know the words, you know the story, but just, just try to be amazed at the price that was paid to give you this gift. Jesus did all that, accomplished that, died that, suffered that. So that the path of life can be opened for you. So that Jesus, you see, becomes the treasure. So in the New Testament, if you remember the book of Acts, Peter is preaching the very first Christian sermon. And he's telling the, the Jews that have gathered there for Passover, he's telling them about Jesus. And he quotes from Psalm 16. He quotes the last four verses of Psalm 16. And then he says to them, brothers, I can confidently assure you that David, the author of these words, died and was buried, and he's still there. His soul saw corruption. His tomb is with us to this day. So who's David talking about? That's the question. Who's he talking about? This holy one who will not see decay. And Peter says he's talking about Jesus. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Do you remember what God said to David when God made this beautiful promise to David? I'm going to set one of your heirs on a throne and it's going to be an everlasting throne, an everlasting kingdom. David knows that something big is coming. There's going to be an immortal king. And so Peter says... Knowing this promise, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Life is broken into this world of death in Jesus. And in Jesus, the path of life has been made known to us. He is the path, isn't he? I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, but every man that follows Jesus finds life, walks the path of life. Jesus laid that path down with his own body and blood, and no matter now how the devil might threaten, no matter how the flesh might fail, no matter how the world might mock, no matter if we are, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, as sheep to be slaughtered, it doesn't matter. In Jesus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Death has no hold on us. It doesn't. It really doesn't. You hear about these people who have near-death experiences, and they say afterwards, I, I'm just not afraid to die anymore. Friends, we have better than a near-death experience. We have a death experience in Jesus Christ, but he broke through death. He destroyed death. He came back from death. And he came now to be ours, and he's the first fruit of everlasting life. Because he lives forever, Paul says we will live with him forever. We have much, something much better, much more certain than a near-death experience. We have the absolute gospel truth that death has been destroyed in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the path of life. Jesus is the pleasures at the right hand of God. Do you know where Jesus is today? He's at the right hand of God. Jesus is the treasure. Jesus is the eternal pleasure. We're going to be with him. We're going to see him. We're going to dwell with him. And we get in this life to believe these things, to know these things, to take these things to ourselves so that we have a path to walk. And now, friend, as I just wrap it up, where's your faith tonight? Where's your faith? Are you taking refuge in God? Not just asking God for help to make it through the rough spots. That's how pagans treat their deities. But taking God to be your God. God is your portion. God is your your cup. God is your treasure. Are you feeding on the counsel of God? Are, you, are your ears open? Lord, teach me. Talk to me. When I, when I read your word, when I listen to a message, when I'm, when I'm listening to something maybe on the radio, just, Lord, talk to me. Give me counsel. When you lay in bed at night, are you, are you talking to the Lord? Or just rehearsing the day and fretting about tomorrow? Are you setting the Lord before you? Knowing that because he is at your right hand, because he promised he's never going to leave you, he's never, ever, ever going to forsake you. The king of kings, the Lord of lords is your friend. He's your savior, your advocate, your mediator, your counselor, your guide. He's given you his own spirit to be all of that to you and for you. But you need to set him before you. Is he your soul's deepest, your deepest longing and satisfaction? If I asked you, if you could have anything in the world that you wanted tonight, what would it be? What's your heart's desire? Too often our heart's desire is a pay raise, it's a sexual experience, it's a better relationship. We just got to confess it all is idolatry and sin and say, God, give me this one pure passion, right? One holy passion filling all my frame. That I want Jesus. I want nothing more than Jesus. And what Jesus determines is best for me and for his glory. Make the assurance, then, of all that Jesus promises to be to you. Make that your, the foundation you stand on. Jesus has promised. Jesus has said, Jesus is not going to fail me. Take your confidence in the fact that you are a conqueror over death in Jesus Christ. Nothing can rob you of God's heaven that God's Son has given to you. By his own death and blood. Friends, there's a life to live, this life, your life, to the glory of God. There's a world that needs to hear about him. There's there's an eternity awaiting us to look for and to long for. There are pleasures to be enjoyed forever at God's right hand. And they're all for us as we believe, as we apply our faith. May God grant to all of us. Amen. Father in heaven, we want to just confess before you tonight that too too often, Lord, we are fretting and worrying and anxious and we are not taking refuge in God. Father, you know every person here You know the sin that so easily besets us. You know the worries we carry with us. You know the griefs that weigh us down. Father, I pray that you'd give us, by your spirit, faith. But Lord, we tonight want to commit ourselves to faith that we will not simply ask you for help, but we we will lay hold of the help that you've given with the arms of faith. And that we'll stop acting as though the nations control our destiny and other people determine our attitudes and our our happiness. And we will stop acting like we are just pawns in this vast universe. We are children of Jesus, children of the Father in Jesus. We are heirs of everlasting life. We have the living God as our Savior and Lord and friend and advocate, our counselor and guide. Oh, Lord Jesus, I I pray that you'd give us then the courage to believe. And as we believe, as Paul writes in Romans, may the God of all hope fill us with joy and peace in believing in believing. Lord, make us happy, joyful, confident Christians as we look for our inheritance that will never spot or spoil, as we trust you to keep us for it. Make us happy Christians. In Jesus' name, amen.